I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Nita Prose about her mystery novel, The Maid. Nita is Vice President and Editorial Director at Simon & Schuster in Canada and has worked at several publishing houses during her career. She credits the array of authors and publishing colleagues for teaching her the craft of writing. In this episode, we discuss the challenge of finding new ways to approach a beloved genre, the importance of studying other writers' work, and what it feels like to know a movie is being made of your novel. But first, here's Nita with an extract from The Maid. I am your maid. I'm the one who cleans your hotel room, who enters like a phantom when you're out gallivanting for the day. No care at all about what you've left behind, the mess, or what I might see when you're gone. I'm the one who empties your trash, tossing out the receipts you don't want anyone to discover. I'm the one who changes your sheets, who can tell if you slept in them and if you were alone last night or not. I'm the one who straightens your shoes by the door, who puffs up your pillows and finds stray hairs on them. Yours? Not likely. I'm the one who cleans up after you drink too much and soil the toilet seat, or worse. When I'm done with my work, I leave your room pristine. Your bed is perfectly made with four plump pillows, as though no one had ever lain there. The dust and grime you left behind has been vacuumed into oblivion. Your polished mirror reflects your face of innocence back at you. It's as though you were never here. It's as though all of your filth, all of your lies and deceits have been erased. I am your maid. I know so much about you. But when it comes down to it, what is it that you know about me. Hi Nita, welcome to the podcast. I'm thrilled to have you here with me today. Hi Chloe, I'm so excited to be here with you. Uh, you know, we've we've gone back and forth by email and all sorts of social media, but it's really nice to be here and to hear your voice. So first of all, I just have to say before we start, huge congratulations. What a massive achievement the maid's done so far. Your number one New York Times bestseller as we speak. Uh, number one Canadian bestseller and Sunday Times bestseller as well. Well done. Thank you very much. Um, I do wake up every day pinching myself and feeling like this is a dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, so can you kick us off with a little outline of the plot of The Maid? 
Sure. Well, the maid is about Molly and she is a socially awkward hotel room maid whose world gets turned upside down when she stumbles across an infamous guest who is very dead in his hotel room bed. Um, To me, this is a novel about what it means to be the same as everyone else and yet entirely different. And I think as a whodunit, it is a, a bit unusual because the mystery can only be solved through a connection to the human heart. Yeah, and it's all told through Molly's eyes. We're we're living it with her. So exactly. Your inspiration for the maid came from a hotel visit yourself. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Well, um, I work in the publishing industry and I'm an editor. And in 2019, I was actually at the London Book Fair and I was staying at a London area hotel. And I left one morning to go to a meeting and I came back to the hotel, opened my door and I completely startled the roommate who was cleaning it. And I remember her, you know, jumping backwards, so surprised. And she was standing in a shadow And the embarrassing part, Chloe, is that in her hands, she was holding my pants, which like a fool, I had left in a tangled mess on my bed. And I remember looking at her and thinking what an intimate and invisible job it is to be a roommate. You know, she'd come to the room many days in a row. And just by cleaning, she knew so much about me and I knew nothing about her. So it's funny, you know, how these things sort of lodge in your head sometimes. I didn't think about it after that. I went on with my day. I went on with several days. And then a few days later, I was on the plane ride home and it suddenly came to me, Molly's voice. It was clean. It was very precise. It was perfect, polished to perfection. I heard it just like that. And I grabbed the napkin from under my drink and I started to write the prologue in a single burst. And even then it's not like, you know, I didn't have a divine plan to write a debut novel, but that is actually when the seed for this, for this novel was actually sown. So how did it grow from that? How did it come together? Did you kind of let that prologue settle for a while or did you, as soon as you got home off the plane, kind of feel the need to go and write the rest? Well, after that, I knew I had my main character and I knew I had... Uh, a hotel and then and and you know I had that tingly feeling like maybe maybe this is the time you know I always thought maybe one day I will turn my hand uh to novel writing you know I've worked as a ghostwriter on the nonfiction side for many years I am an editor I do know the industry and I understand some of the ins and outs um but but with this idea I was like yeah this is it really called me. So I did then sit down and sort of map it out. Um, And, you know, it's a great thing to know a couple important aspects right away, like your protagonist and the main setting. And then for me, it was a matter of mapping out what could happen, what sort of world we were in. And if I could combine some aspects of mystery with what you guys call in the UK, uplift, you know, um, Mm -hmm. uplifting literature or feel good fiction in the US, a kind of um, novel that is driven by a journey of the spirit and a feeling of hope. And, you know, murder mysteries and a feeling of hope, (laughs) perhaps perhaps those two things are a bit... Wow, you'd be surprised. You know, well, there's, exactly. been a, there's been a huge surge in that kind of like cozy mystery genre. So, you, you know, you hit it at the right time. 
Yes. And I think, you know, for me, one of the, the fun parts of trying to build this world was seeing how far I could stretch um, the darkness and the light. And I tried to do um, both in equal measure. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I've, I've seen you compare it to, uh, I think you call it Clue in, in your country and we call it Cluedo here. It's that kind of like it's the Agatha Christie kind of there's no there's no blood and guts but there's still like you say there's still death in it but there's the the nicer side to it as well the characters that are that are warmer than perhaps something that's a bit more chilling yes exactly i wanted to create sort of archetypal characters who then of course slowly hopefully if i've done my job right wend their way closer to your heart Mm. you know um so they might start out um as a little bit unknowable or like characters in a board game. And then over time, we get to know them a little bit more. So obviously Molly's the heart of the novel and we see everything through her eyes um, and it's that in that first person perspective. You've described her similar to um, Elephant, <laughs> I can't say it. Eleanor Oliphant. That's the one, Ele- Eleanor <laughs> Oliphant, that's it. Um, you've described her as being kind of socially awkward Um how did you go about writing from her perspective? What kind of inspired you? You said her voice came to you, but then from her characterization, how did that develop over time? Well, you know, it was sort of about sitting down and figuring out how to be her, how to live behind her eyes and exist in her skin and see from her point of view. And something that, you know, came back to me was an experience I'd had many years ago. This was before I was an editor. I worked for a time with um, special needs students in uh, high school. And uh, it was really an extraordinary and formative time in a lot of ways. One of those scenarios where I came in as one role, I came in as a teacher, and I feel like I left learning so much from those kids. And something that stuck with me was, you know, when we would go outside of the school um, and we'd go on a field trip and we'd be out in the world, I was always just so shocked by how other people would treat them. Um, but that that's the ugly side. But the, the, the really great thing that I also saw was how adaptable, uh, resilient, unbelievably strong these young people were in the face of such abject mistreatment. And I learned so much about that. And that is a spirit I wanted to imbue Molly with in the book. You know, um, I didn't want the reader to go in with any assumptions about her at all, but to really have to sit as her, to become her. And my hope was that if you really do um, live as her, then you come to love her. Mm, mm, definitely. And also when you have that uh, amateur sleuth character, when you're reading as them, it's fun to kind of, to, I think particularly with Molly, you're picking up on clues that she isn't necessarily. Yes, exactly. So, you know, one of the difficult parts about writing in a genre like mystery is the conventions have been so well done by others like, oh, I don't know, Agatha Christie, and a whole bunch of other extraordinary authors who are experts in the genre. 
So my question to myself as I was writing was, you know, what, what are the rules that I can take of the mystery genre and what are the rules I can break? And, you know, one of the sort of archetypal characters that, of course, we all love and we've seen in many forms is that Sherlock Holmesian sort of character who knows everything. He's the know-it-all who walks in the room and he surveys it and he can say, oh, these are the 10 things wrong. And you as a reader or a viewer, if you're seeing something on the screen, um, you know, you're just so impressed by his uh, acuity and you learn what, you know, all about your own inability to see and Molly is exactly the opposite. She thinks she understands everything and has perfect perception. But of course, the reader sees beyond that. So the reader becomes Sherlock Holmes and is actually the one collecting the clues. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about your description of the Regency Grand Hotel, because most of the action in the novel takes place there. And from very early on in the first couple of chapters, you just describe it really vividly it's very kind of filmic in the way you describe it and I know your early inspiration when you were thinking about Molly came from when you were in a hotel but was the Grand Regency a place that you kind of had pictured in your mind where did you get the kind of look and the feel from? It was really a pastiche. It was like a mood board that I created in my head from a few hotels that I've been to. And then I just really painted it in my mind's eye. I wanted to give this feeling of grandeur, of elegance, of an art deco mystique, of something timeless and yet also contemporary. Because in a lot of ways, I see the hotel as creating uh, the mood of the book and being a character in and of itself that reflects so many aspects of of the bigger drama um and i loved that part i must say like describing the hotel was like one of the really fun um you know experiences for me as a writer but it does require a certain kind of commitment and restraint for me when i write my goal is to create the reader's experience of participation so that means giving enough detail so that you as a reader can picture the regency grand in your mind However, not giving you so many details that you can't participate with your own imagery and your own imagination. Mm -hmm. To me, that's the really sweet spot of a reading experience is when the writer gives just enough and you as the reader fill in the blanks. So that's something I had to find over time. And certainly my editors helped me to do that. But um, that process of building that gorgeous, um, you know, dreamlike place uh, was a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely imagine. And like you say, it's that balance of not kind of overwhelming the reader with too much information that actually is not necessary, but just giving them a feel. And I think there's definitely a a real uh, sense of place in in the beginning where you're kind of setting the scene. Yeah, you did that really, really well. Oh, thank you. So obviously there's such an appeal with a hotel setting. You've got all these characters, like you say, that are perhaps behind the scenes that we don't always get to see ourselves if we're a guest. Um, and there's there's so much potential there for secrecy and um, all these little kind of backstories. So your your novel's got quite a cast of characters with many with their own secrets. So can you talk us through how you built kind of those side characters and their, how did their secrets come to you? Huh. Well, you know, that's where I, I really attribute everything that I've learned about plot and narrative engines to the authors that I've worked with in my other 
publishing life as an editor for the last 15 years. So part of my work as an editor is to be a structuralist, to really understand the narrative components that go into building a world and taking the reader through a narrative experience from the beginning right to the close. And so that's something that, you know, uh, I worked on really hard. I knew the characters I wanted, and I knew in the world of mystery, each of them has to have their secrets. Every last one of them has to be holding something back. And then it's sort of, you know, a game that that I am playing both with myself and with the reader <laughs> about what what breadcrumbs I leave for you to pick up and which ones I sort of hold in my satchel and for discovery at the end of the work. And, you know, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know all the answers at the beginning. And, you know, I'm a, I call myself a tent pole writer because for me, um, I need to know where I'm going. Like I need to know, you know, the, some of the twists that happened in the second half, I knew right from the get go. Mm. And I knew more or less how I wanted the plot to work out, but it was all about, you know, finding those finer details that are actually going to land that for the reader. And that for me kept me waking up at 5am because it was like um, the problem that I had to solve on the page. And that was a mm. huge motivational factor. And I think for a lot of read, uh, writers, it's like that. What, what keeps them doing the work is not knowing how to do the work. If yeah. we knew from the get-go, if we knew everything from the get-go, kind of the fun would be lost. <laughs> Don't yeah, you think? Definitely. I mean, you're a writer too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, part of it is the problem solving. And I think sometimes maybe that's why some writers are hesitant to plan because they worry that they're going to bore themselves because they've already worked out the hard bits. But actually, even, I mean, I'm someone that plans. I don't know about you. We'll talk about your process in, in a while. But, um, you know, even if you plan, you're still working things out in between. A hundred percent. No matter how much you plan, you're still going to be discovering on the page. I mean, yeah. unless you really stop yourself, which no writer would, would mm. dream of doing that. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. So when you were, when you were kind of formulating their secrets, did, did you find, I know it's a kind of a cliche to, to say, but um, your characters moved in directions maybe that you weren't expecting. Did things surprise you about them when you were writing them? Yes. In a way I, you know, I knew that this is a book about, you know, justice. It's a book about black and white, and it's a, uh, a book about the spectrum of good and evil and what those two things might look like or mean, or, or mean. And, you know, so there are certain characters who did sort of surprise me because when I went into the story, I expect them to, to stay sort of absolutely in um, the frame of evil, for instance, and they didn't. They, they, as I discovered them more and learned more about them, they would slide slowly down the other line towards goodness, for instance. And so one particular, one particular character where that happened the most was Giselle. You know, Giselle uh, is a trophy wife. Mr. Black, her husband, this is not a spoiler, is very, very dead in his bed at the beginning of the novel and you know Giselle forms a friendship with Molly the maid a very unusual effect friendship because they are from different classes different societies and they could not be more different and yet there is finally so much that bonds them and when I went into writing um, those scenes and sort of sketching out the character arc of those two um, uh, women I was pretty certain that Giselle was really not very good that she was a master manipulator in every possible way. 
And it was really a discovery to me to learn that while she has issues and doesn't always, you know, make choices that are the most empathetic to everybody, finally, she's not as bad an egg as I thought. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say, um, she definitely is not a character that I would put down as someone really like unlikable and on that scale of things. So it's interesting that you were intending to make her kind of worse in that respect. Yeah, well, I judged her, you know, I judged her at the beginning, you know, she's materialistic and, you know, she's kind of done a number on Mr. Black in many ways. And, you know, she, there are a few qualities about her that are, Mm. that are not pretty. Um, but then I grew really to understand what would make her that way, you know? And I think that's, that is part of the writing process when you're writing characters that are perhaps darker or morally gray, you've got to empathize with them as well. Otherwise you can't write them truthfully. Can you? No, I guess so. I think you're very right about that. Mm. So we've talked about how there's kind of been a, a resurgence of love for these kind of mystery stories and like we were saying kind of uh, what we might term cozy mysteries or kind of uplit so what is it about the mystery genre that really appeals to you um there's a sort of natural engine to it that is a gift to any writer so you know every genre is going to come with its set of gifts and its set of burdens and the mystery genre has the gift of the whodunit and what i mean by that is we know what the major engine is right from the first chapter whodunit We know the whole goal is to figure out um, who died and why and who's responsible. Um, And so that's really great. Now, the challenge is the one that I alluded to before, is that there are so many masters of this well-trodden genre that to sort of innovate it and to find any newness in it is just an absolutely brutal challenge. And I think, you know, I'm not the only one working into this genre, obviously. The so-called cozy um, is one that that seems to be um, of great interest at the moment. Um, but even as I say that, I, I'm, I'm almost surprised that, that my world is considered cozy because when you look underneath it, there is a lot of extreme darkness mm. going on. Um, yeah. and, um, it's not really cozy at all. Mm. Yeah. I guess it's the, the genre is kind of broadened a little bit. It's not the kind of, um, it's not just kind of murder at the, uh, or crime at the, uh, cake judging competition, which I think maybe that's what the genre used to be. Uh, yes. maybe it's broadening yes. a bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you've worked, as you've said, as an editor and a ghostwriter for several years, and you mentioned maybe that it wasn't always your intention to to write this debut novel, but had it been something you'd kind of thought about before writing, or had you always wanted to write your own book? How how had how had your kind of feelings towards writing yourself changed? Well, you know, as I said, I I was I am a ghostwriter. I've I've worked many times with you know people who are experts at whatever they do, whether they're an astronaut or a politician or a musician. And um, I help them and collaborate with them in order to get their stories on the page. So that was um, a process that I was really familiar with. Uh, But it's an entirely different thing when you're helping Mm. somebody do that for themselves in the world of nonfiction versus uh, doing that for yourself in the world 
of fiction. Um, so there was a creative leap, but of course, some of the, you know, all the principles still apply. You still need a story arc that's going to take you from the beginning to the end. Um, and I just felt that with this particular idea, it was, it was just, it was the right time and it was the right idea to really give it my best and my all. Mm. Do you feel like you were waiting for that right time? Yes, I do. I think I was for the right time and the right combination that would inspire me to, you know, do the very difficult thing of holding a, a, you know, a massive job. Like Mm. it's not a small job. (laughs) Anybody working in publishing, it is a vocation and it takes a lot of life out of you um, in the best possible way. So, you know, that commitment, uh, something really had to, has to sustain you to get up at 5 a.m. every day and put in four hours work before your workday begins, right? Mm. Um, and this idea did sustain me. I was compelled by it. I, I really wanted to problem solve on the page. Yeah, and of course, you've seen it from the other side. So do you think that editing other people's writing has changed the way you write? Do you think it makes the process for you easier or more difficult? Um, it, I have definitely learned everything I know from my writers. So Mm. I feel like it's been an advanced crash course. Well, not really crash since I've worked in this industry for so long and worked with so many writers. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I have, I have learned so much about the fundamental principles of how books come together, how characters, um, you know, evolve. And so in that way, as a structuralist, I was I was very well prepared in ways that perhaps um, you know a lot of debut writers might not be, and um, that has definitely served me well. And I credit this industry, the publishing industry, and my many authors who have allowed me to help them uh, participate in their worlds with uh, teaching me so much. Mm. Yeah, I think from from speaking to many writers and. I include myself in this that often we learn from reading other people's work critiquing other people's work helping them with issues that um, then inform our own writing so I can see how that would be a massive uh, advantage for you when you were working on your own novel absolutely for me the other thing is that editing and writing just feel like two halves of the same whole to me Um, so this journey doesn't feel separate from the other journey. It Mm -hmm. just feels like a continuation of everything I've ever been good at, which is really only one thing, (laughs) telling stories myself or helping other people tell stories. Mm -hmm. That's all I can do. I'm not good (laughs) at anything else. (laughs) Well, at least you're good at that. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) It's good. I have one thing. Yeah. (laughs) So I know there'll be uh, people listening who maybe have an idea for a novel right now. So what would you say, how, how do you judge whether you've got a, a great idea on your hands? Well, you can't ever really know until you try it. That's the absolute truth. Um, so, and the other thing is that just because you have a great idea doesn't mean it's possible to execute it on the page. Um, <laughs> so the only way to know if in fact it is is to try it, Hmm. you know, is to do the very difficult work of trying to understand and world build um, towards towards a narrative that's going to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And um, that is a huge uh, creative leap. Hmm. When you started with The Maid, did you have a kind of a gut feeling or were there people in your life that you maybe talked about 
the book with that were encouraging you? I never talked about anyone. I oh, never really? talked to anyone about <laughs> this book. So when was I was writing secret. it, it was a total secret. And it was a secret because of my own psychological barriers. Because I work in this industry, the thought of handing over my manuscript to agents and publishers, well, they, they aren't strangers to me. They're people I work with every single day who I respect immensely. And the thought of you know, them seeing my work and going, oh, well, this is lovely in quotation marks, um, but I'm sorry, it's not for us. Uh, you know, and then I would have to go out there and face them every single day for the rest of my career, knowing I tried, but I didn't, I didn't meet the mark. So that really stopped me from telling anyone. And when I say I didn't tell anyone, that is what I mean. I did not tell my partner. I did not tell my family. I did not tell my colleagues. I did not tell my friends. Um, you know, when I was getting up early in the morning, I, it was because I had a lot of work to do. <laughs> it's just, this is my new habit. I've got a lot of work to do. Um, that way no one can ask you questions. So that works perfectly. Right. Right. So, you know, it took me a long time to be able to, like, I, I finished a draft before I told, you know, anyone what I had actually been up to, um, in this liminal time of the morning when the rest of the world goes asleep. Mm. So what's your... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You mentioned getting up at 5 a.m. and working before work, um, working on a novel before work, but... What's your writing process kind of like in general? Are you are you a planner? Are you someone who has like a 
uh, tons of notes or post-it notes or how do you work? Um, I do plan. I'm a scenic planner. I'm a character planner. And I need to know just what I call the skeleton architecture of a book before I will even allow myself to write a word that looks like a chapter or a prologue <laughs> or anything. And, um, you know, I think one mistake that I've seen authors do is be inspired by this driving engine of, oh, I just want to write this. I just want to write this and just write themselves into a corner because they haven't actually done the um, sort of the, yeah, just like the structural thinking around narrative um, that that is, I think, really, really important to do early on. It doesn't have to be at the beginning, but early mm -hmm. on um, in the process so so that you know that you have more than a beginning so that you know what you're driving towards yeah so you don't hit that wall kind of thirty thousand words in and you suddenly don't know where to go next yeah which is you know terrifying and yeah there are solutions to that mm. but sometimes there aren't and yeah. that is a devastating thing for any author is to you know do that much work and move forward on that creative impulse only to realize that this narrative they've committed to actually does not have an end. Mm, mm, definitely. Um, we have to talk now about the incredibly exciting news about the movie adaptation that's going to happen. Every writer's dream, you must be over the moon. So how did you feel when you heard that The Maid was going to be made into a movie with Florence Pugh in the title role? Uh, well, it was quite a process and I was <laughs> so ridiculously excited when it actually came to fruition. So Universal Pictures is the option of the film. And um, as you say, Florence Pugh is, is set to star as Molly. And of course, she's, you know, just this tremendous, brilliant young actor who um, is an Academy Award nominee and has done all kinds of things from very um, art films all the way to something like a Marvel movie in Black Widow. And what I love about her performances, it's just the way she makes the most unusual possible choice with everything that confronts her in a scene. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think Molly is already a very unusual character. To, so to have Florence Pugh's lens on an already unusual character, I mean, I cannot wait to watch what she comes mm -hmm. up with. You know, Yeah, I'm sure she's going to be amazing. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I noticed uh, she uh, wrote about the maid on Instagram the other day and it's just so amazing. You must be absolutely thrilled. So are you involved at all in the making of the film? Like, Do you know whether you're going to get to uh, go and watch any filming or anything like that? Well, that is the tricky part is that I can't say too much at Ooh, the moment. Okay. <laughs> but um, what I can say is that I have had some involvement so far and I am tremendously excited about, you know, all of the steps that I've been involved mm. with so far. And I cannot wait to see this come to life on the screen. You know, one of the really exciting parts for me, apart from the obvious thing, which is the casting and seeing how um, these roles come together and who plays them, et cetera, is actually seeing how the hotel looks on the screen. I mean, we talked a little bit about, mm. you know, that process in writing where you have to give just enough, but not too much. And that that's gonna keep the reader participating. Well, that's not the same way it is in film. It's quite the opposite. Okay. The, the viewing experience of that hotel will give you 
everything, Mm. literally everything. It's going to be, you know, um, a visual overload. And I cannot wait to be able to see that, to experience that in all of its technical color glory on the screen. Yeah, I can just imagine how it's going to look and it's going to be gorgeous, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so as we've already mentioned, you've had incredible success so far with the, with the maid. I just want to ask you, how, how has the experience been for you and what has been the biggest highlight so far? You've probably had many highlights. <laughs> I've, I have had many highlights. Publishing is a roller coaster. Um, there are there are incredible days and there are bad days. And so is writing. The writing um, experience is very much like that. You know, you can have days where you've you've really done nothing. You've sat around for four hours and you come out thinking, I made zero progress. In fact, I went three steps backwards. Excellent. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm feeling fine. <laughs> You know, um, so those days that are really, really good, you just have to bask in them and just keep their glow and 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 keep it inside you um, for the very, very hard moments. Um, and uh, I'm lucky to have a little bank of those now, <laughs> that's for sure. For me, probably though, if I had to rate the highest moment in the entire experience, it was. Um, actually a moment early on. And that's when um, Madeline Milburn, who is my agent, signed me. Uh, Because I'm in the industry, I, you know, I know how important an agent is. And Maddie is somebody who I respect so much for so many reasons, not the least of which is that before any of us glommed on to that incredible novel you mentioned before, Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine by Gail Honeyman, she, Maddie saw in that book, something that was a real genre breaker, something that was extraordinary that, you know, then became a thing. It then became a thing called uplet. It became a pattern, a kind of style of writing that was contemporary, fresh, innovative, and that allowed for characters who were not always so-called likable to be seen and to be explored on the page and for hope to be something that was okay to put down on a page too. So when Maddie read my work, I was terrified, Chloe. I cannot tell you how scared I was when I pressed that button and sent my manuscript to her. (laughs) Terrified. When she wrote back to me saying she loved the book and would love to represent me, I fell on my knees. Like I fell on my knees. There has not been a time in my life where I've done that because I knew what it meant. I knew Mm -hmm. that if it was good enough for Maddie, then I'd done something um, that I'd set out to do. And that for me has been the highlight of this entire journey. Mm. I think it's really important that uh, writers and we all remember those kind of early achievements because it's easy to get lost later on down the line and forget that once upon a time, getting that agent, getting that representation was the most important thing in the world and then when you get it it kind of gets lost but like you say that that moment is such a huge achievement in itself and it's something definitely to be celebrated yes and we do have a habit I think there's a certain type of a personality type that is the writer type Mm. and we do have a habit of as soon as we've achieved something small or large we put it behind us next Mm. next now I got to do the next thing now it because it takes a certain kind of um, ambition and drive to write. It's not an easy mm. thing and a vulnerability and a tenderness too. 
Um, and I think you're very right about that is then, you know, once we've surmounted a problem, whether that's a narrative problem or, or something that, that is part of the business, an industrial problem, once it's behind us, you know, we don't reflect too much on, mm. oh yeah, that was, that was really important. I learned something from that. I'm going to take that with me. Yeah. It's almost like you want to go back in time 10 years and tell your former self, this is what you've achieved and it's incredible and and your former self wouldn't have you know wouldn't have believed that could happen but when you've done it you know (laughs) a hundred percent I'm sure you feel that way and I feel exactly that way of course we wouldn't believe ourselves (laughs) yeah I think sometimes you sort of uh you know take it for granted and because that was a while ago and you're kind of waiting for the next thing and it's that shifting goalposts and I think because I think we're always looking for uh, our next achievement, like we're always moving forward in our work. You know, we're always kind of thinking of the next idea. There's never a moment where you get to stop and take it all in. And and I hope there's been some times for you in this amazing time that you've been able to stop and, you know, go, wow. <laughs> well, I will say I did open a, a, a bottle of champagne last night and probably drank a little too much of it. And I don't feel at all bad about it. Not even a little bit. <laughs> You're right. It is yeah. important to to stop and and celebrate what you've done. Mm. For sure. Yeah, definitely. So thinking now about um, about readers, who do you think that the maid would appeal to? We've we've mentioned a couple of books already, but can you think of uh, some novels that you can compare the maid to? Well, I think it it really does appeal to mystery readers. So those Agatha Christie types or anyone who really loves that sort of style of a whodunit, you know, it it does have that um, that uh, drive to it. So, you know, I want the reader be to be asking questions, questions like, is it the bartender with a knife in the kitchen or is it the maid with a pillow in the bedroom? I want you to be able to participate in the unraveling that way. So that sort of reader who, who likes to piece together the clues and wants to know the, the answer to the main question, I think the book will appeal to that sort of reader. But I think it, I hope it will also appeal to another kind of reader entirely who loves the kind of journey um, where you really get into a character um, and where the story itself is as important as um, the character sketch. Um, and, you know, there's a, you know, that's, that's a big tradition uh, in writing. Um, and, you know, some people have done it incredibly well. I think Mark Haddon did it very well. Um, and I think Frederick Bachman has a peculiar and, incredible ability to um, just slow drip a character into being. And he's an author I deeply respect. And he does something different every time, but somehow the heart is always the same. So yeah, when I grow up, I want to become Frederick Bachman. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure there'll be people that are thinking when they grow up, they want to be a writer. So can you give us your... Uh, top three tips about for writers, perhaps ones that are working on or thinking of working on a mystery novel. I think my biggest tip is read, read like crazy and read within the genre you're working on. So if that is mystery, then read a ton of mystery, but also equally important, uh, read outside of the genre. 
become an omnivore, understand what works and what doesn't, uh, collect the books and the tones and the moods that appeal to you, even if they're very, very different from what you yourself are doing. Uh, I think by studying and then taking apart, dissecting, understanding how story comes together, how character comes together, the architecture of scenes, um, the build of momentum, the dynamics between characters, you can learn all of those three things from other writers by studying their work. And, um, you know, that is the beauty of this ecosystem, you know, is that uh, books are this wonderful democracy. We can all have access to them. Some of us have limits in our access, absolutely. But um, we can understand them um, and take them apart and learn from them. And if you're a writer, that is the most valuable tool um, that you can apply to your own work. Mm. Yeah, I definitely think that idea of collection, building that kind of uh, bank almost of of uh, of content that you enjoy, whether it's language, whether you think someone does structure in a really interesting way, it's nice to kind of, even if you think, like you said, if it, even if it doesn't really apply to the project you're working on at the moment, to have it there that you can refer back to at a certain point, whether you're working on something new or inspires you in a different way, is a, is a really great advice, bit of advice there. And finally, are you working on anything new right now? I am. Um, these days, I must say my time is pretty limited in, because a lot of my um, time that previously would have been spent writing is spent, um, you know, supporting this, the publication of The Maid. However, I do have a few ideas um, that I'm currently working on and um, but none is so solidified that I can actually pitch it or say this is yeah, it this yeah. is def definitely and definitively going to be my next work um, so what I can say is that you know uh, I'm me I've tried to change myself it didn't go so well I will always be the same um, but what I, what I write might be a little bit different and yet it'll still be me. Um, so, so, you know, I, I hope that I can please readers as much as, uh, I've pleased the ones who have contacted me about the maid and I will try again. Brilliant. And I'm sure you'll come up with something fantastic. Thank you so much, Nita, for joining me today. Thank you, Chloe. That was Nita Prose talking about her mystery novel, The Maid, which is out now and available to buy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.